0: They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me the word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went to their way, went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there. And I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. When he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men became furious and he went, he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or young or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Rama, weeping a loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. And when Herod, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel, but When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. You may sit.
1: In Jesus' day, there were different types of kings. There were puppet kings like Herod, vassal kings, who were under a great king. People like Herod, kings like Herod, they had some power, but it was only over a small region, and it was allotted to them by a greater king. In this case, that king was Caesar. So Herod, as he was known to do, reigned over his little fiefdom with this iron fist. And if people revolted or there was any type of civil disobedience, Herod would be responsible. And so the great king being Caesar would look at Herod and say, you're not keeping your people in line. Therefore you will be punished. So you can sort of understand why someone like Herod would be a a, a control freak, (laughs) someone who would do all he could to make sure that his little region was under control. The thing about Herod, though, was that he was often thought of as someone who is insane, paranoid. And actually, as he got older, and perhaps some of us experience this even in our older age, we feel a little bit more sensitive, a little bit more self-righteous. Herod, all the more so. And the fact that he had a little power, he used that power to destroy, to bring shock and awe upon his people, and he did it for self-centered and evil purposes. Contrast that with perhaps a king who would, rather than acting upon only self-righteous, self-aggrandizing purposes, do so to care and to love and to be compassionate and to be merciful. What if a supreme king who ruled over the land was kind and wise. See, the problem with Herod is that he had power, but he used it for evil purposes. And we say we would hate to be under the reign and rule of such a king. But it's not that a king or the inherent king is the problem itself. It's the person who is the king. But if there could be a king who is good, righteous, just, merciful. That king would be worth waiting for. And it's why we celebrate this season today. It's why this particular day, December 25th on the church calendar year, is a reminder for us of a day to await a coming king. And so we're going to look at this passage from Matthew chapter two and look at just really two main points. The first is about King Herod. Now, I'm going to call him the threatened king in verses 1 through 18. And then the second is about Jesus. Jesus, according to verses 19 through 23, is the insignificant king. Let me I'll explain that a little later. So first, let's look at Herod. This threatened king, according to verses 1 through 18. The story begins with the magi or magoi. They're going as as wise men from the East and as astrologers who studied the stars, which God used in some way to bring the light of God's goodness to them, really as pagans, as people who had no idea of who God was. And yet God sovereignly acted to bring forth this picture of saying, there's a king who's going to be born. And he is so special that the star, which they studied on a regular basis, they were going to follow it. So as they follow the star, it's the star leads them to Herod. And they ask a question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, if you can just imagine that, you already have this guy, Herod, he is paranoid, he's absolutely fixated on his own rule and suddenly these special men from the east come and they ask Herod this question how do you think he would feel he'd feel threatened this king of the jews he's the king of the jews he's the one who they should be saying hey aren't you the king of the jews but they no they're asking where is the one who is born and notice verse 3 when Herod, the king, heard this. It's a definite article. It's saying that Herod believed himself to be the king. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And why was he troubled? Herod became king through political connections, through different maneuvers. He was appointed by the Roman Senate, and he was ruthless. The Roman forces did all they could to destroy all opposition. And they put Herod overseeing the region of Palestine and Judea. And they placed him there, gave him some treasures, some political power and military power. And with that, he was active in building projects. He rebuilt the temple. He was a lover of power and money. And he was a despot to his own people. His own people hated him. So by the time Jesus is born, he was historically extremely paranoid, mentally insane, and he had gone through tremendous purges, even to the point where he wiped out all of his associates and actually executed his own wife. So you can imagine what must have been running through Herod's warped mind when he heard the, the birth of a new Jewish king. Jealousy, envy took over his soul. Can you imagine also what a troubled time this was? It says, according to verse 3, that all of Jerusalem was troubled. Why? Because Herod was threatened? No. They didn't love Herod. They hated Herod. But they knew this guy was truly a nutcase. I mean, he was paranoid. And so they knew that if Herod felt threatened, he would do anything to rectify the situation, including perhaps even wipe out his own people. So they were scared. Everyone was scared. If you've ever seen reports of North Korea, for example, when, um, Kim Jong un's father died and they would show videos of people crying and weeping. It was said that if people weren't weeping hard enough, they would remove them and execute them. And that's what type of terror that people like this commit on their own people. So you can understand why all of Jerusalem was troubled. When Herod found out this news, this infant king was now the greatest threat to Herod. And as a person who is addicted with his own power and control, he would do everything he could to maintain that power, including killing that baby, other babies. And as we will see in verses 16 and 18, he didn't care what happened. So before we see this though, only through, that's the historical picture, but know that in the Bible, there's always two two threads. There's a historical thread and there's a spiritual thread. And remember when we were in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, we talked about us that this battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers. So there's always those two lines, two threads that are going throughout history, what we see in history and what is happening spiritually. What we see happening spiritually, we keep on going back to this because I want you to remember that this is a spiritual war. And the war began in Genesis chapter three when, when God said that the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, there's going to be enmity against one another. That enmity is seen throughout the Bible. Only in the next chapter do we need to go to see that enmity Come to the murder of Cain, uh, murdering his brother Abel. And then we see in that same chapter, in chapter four, one of Cain's descendants, Lamech, would become a tyrant, someone who would be a dictator over the city, over his own region, and he would rule with an iron fist. Herod in every way is descended off of that line. I'm not just talking I'm not talking physically, but I'm talking spiritually that he is a type, Herod is a type of Lamech and of Cain, someone who's going to rule and reign with terror and with sin and with darkness, to destroy God's people, to destroy the seed of the woman. And so when Jesus came and he comes to his own people, we see people like Herod and all throughout Jesus' life, many who would be opposed to the coming of Christ. John describes it this way in John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Why? Because Jesus threatens their rule. He threatens their control. He threatens their comfort. He threatens their status quo. He threatens their worldview. And Christmas is a threat to kings like Herod. Christmas threatens their reign and their rule and their power because when Jesus was born as king, he came to rule. He didn't just come to serve. He came eventually to rule over all. And he comes to challenge every sense of identity and worth that the world says, this is what power is. This is what status is. This is what progress is. Jesus comes at Christmas, to upend all of that. And he came to threaten rulers and governments because the government is upon his shoulder. And so he came to overturn the tables and change the tide of history. But lest we think that he only comes to overturn the thrones of political systems, he also came to overthrow the and overturn the throne of your heart. He came to take you and me, and we have placed ourselves as king over our own heart and said, I am God, I am king, I am ruler, and I get to determine for myself what is just, what is right, what is good, what is perfect, what is uh, sufficient for me. And Christmas is the time that we remember that Jesus came to say, no, you're not king. I'm king. And I'm going to be king over your heart. And I'm going to overthrow you as king. There can really only be one true king. And Christmas threatens who is the king. Is it going to be me or is it going to be Christ? Just think of one person or think one way, one thing, one item that attempts to place you or something as Lord of your life. And there's no room for two or three. Jesus says, I mean, he makes it so clear, you can either serve God or money. And it's not just money, it's mammon. It's the idea of what is controlling us. Jesus doesn't allow that to happen. So you don't need a crazy king like Herod to see just how threatening Christmas is. Christmas threatens your own soul. Never forget that. So we don't just simply open gifts on Christmas. We open our heart to him and we see, will we actually yield our hearts to the ultimate king? So that king is threatened. Secondly, as perhaps the most startling aspect of Christ the king is his insignificance. And we see this in verses 19 through 23. In verse 23, we are told, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Because of providential circumstances, including Jesus being threatened by Herod as a young child, Jesus is sovereignly brought to a a little little village called Nazareth. And we're told that this was foretold that he would be raised in Nazareth. Now, why does that even matter? Why does the Bible go through great lengths to try to tell us that Jesus was to be called the Nazarene, one who was from Nazareth? Because whether in Nazareth or Bethlehem, there's a vast difference. Nazareth was backwater. Nazareth was boony land. It would be no different than meeting someone, perhaps for the first time, and you know I'm not trying to put down West Virginia, but it'd be like someone meeting someone from Appalachia, West Virginia, with a thick, you know, Southern drawl, meeting someone from London in an aristocratic family speaking the Queen's English and the two of them gathering together, and you can understand why there would be almost this prejudice because Bethlehem was the site of kings. That's where David was born. And so it made sense to the Jews if Jesus was born in Bethlehem and lived in Bethlehem, and as the son of David, he was a son of a king. But God brings him to Nazareth. In fact, Nazareth was so backwater that one of Jesus' first disciples called, his name was Nathaniel. Nathaniel gives this common sentiment of the day when Philip tells Nathaniel, hey, I met this guy Jesus from Nazareth, and we should follow him because he, he's the Messiah. And listen to how Nathaniel responds in John 1.46. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So the question is this, why? Why did Jesus, the King of kings, God the Son, sovereignly have to be born this way? You see, the, the Christmas story, what, what we were told and what was read today was the story of parents running for their lives. This mother who, through virgin conception, has a baby, and the father, or not the father, but the husband is so concerned about his reputation and her being an, in a small town like this, you can imagine the stories that would have been told if joseph didn 't marry Mary suddenly, she would have been a woman of you know of real poor reputation, loose morals, and the rumor mill would have just totally gone active. why did it have to be that instead of being born and raised in Bethlehem he had to go to Nazareth? I mean why did he have no place to have a, a place to lay his head even at birth? Why did his life have to be so hard? Why did um, he, we're talking about God the Son who could have brought down legions of angels to protect him, to provide for him? to support him, to give him anything he needed. The reason we're told that he had to go through this, we're told in Isaiah 53, 2-3, prophesying about the one who was to come. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. It was prophesied, as we see in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, and here in Isaiah, that the Messiah would come first as an insignificant king. We esteemed him not. He didn't look the part of a king. He had no status, no wealth, no earthly power. He was exactly the opposite of Caesar. There was literally nothing special about him at all. Not physically, not materially, nothing. But we get this. And then that begs another question. Why that? Why did it have to be this way? Ultimately, the reason is because Jesus came this way to save us. It was the only way to save us. You see, the fundamental problem we have, we all have, is that we all think we do not need God at all. We can do it all ourselves. We are the king of our hearts. We have the power to save ourselves. That's the way our world thinks, and that's the way we think. And the world's greatest temptation from the very beginning is that we could go it alone, and we take all the credit, we take all the glory. This is how it's happened throughout human history, from Cain to Lamech to the Tower of Babel to the nation of Israel beyond. But listen to what Moses tells Israel in Deuteronomy, because Israel was so caught up with saying we're special, we're God's people. But God says this, the Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, set his love on you and chose you for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. And Deuteronomy eight seventeen through 18, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. God warned Israel that there will come a day where they will become prosperous and successful. Remember, Deuteronomy is written while they're in the desert, as they're looking and seeing the promised land. And in that promised land, they don't inherit that at all. They don't have that yet. So Deuteronomy is at a place where God is saying, you will get to this place where you will have wealth, you will have everything. And on that day, when you are Basking in your own glory and saying, it's my effort. The vineyards are grown and you're wealthy and you have big homes and servants and all these things. Remember, you are nothing. There was nothing about you that made you more special than any other nation. And you were backwater. You were a nobody. But I chose you. I loved you. Don't ever forget. Don't ever forget. That's the message of Deuteronomy. I chose you. You were no different. And in fact, you were lesser than every other nation, but simply because God chose them. Because of that, they could not boast. There's nothing to boast about. It should make them more humble, more thankful, more gracious. But is that what happens? If you ever read the Bible, you know that they actually forget. They start boasting. They don't turn to God. They turn to every other God. They are absolutely arrogant and proud and they've forgotten him. So the prophets are all bringing them back to Deuteronomy and saying, remember what I promised. Remember what I said and you've forgotten and I'm holding you to this now. It's the constant theme of the Bible is that God always chooses the lesser so that we could never boast about our own efforts and our own power. I mean, Do you see that theme in Scripture? How often is the second child, the second son chosen instead of the first? Isaac, Jacob, Ephraim, David, who was the last of all the sons, all the other brothers of, of Jesse, they were the sons of Jesse. They were all big and strong. It was the puny... <laughs> Shepherd boy who was chosen as the king. Why is it that there are so many women who cannot have children in the Bible? Sarah, Rachel, Hannah, Elizabeth. Paul gives us the reason why. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, so that he would receive glory. Because he knows our hearts. If he chose the best, the smartest, the brightest, the wealthiest, the most powerful, they always say, it's all my strength. It's all my power. When people are at their lowest points in desperation, only then do we truly come to realize we need a Savior. It's what keeps so many people from turning to Christ. Even on their deathbed, they will raise their fist at God because they say, I'm strong. I studied hard. I have these degrees. I was this status in my life. How foolish. We need Christmas. We need the Christmas of the insignificant king to realize truly how much we have been loved, how much God cares for us. Only then do we realize that Jesus came not for the healthy, but for us, for the sick. The church is filled with a group of sick people who are in need of a Savior. And only then are you willing then to truly cast your crowns down. I love that vision in Revelation chapter four and five. It's the idea that the more we see what Christ has done for us, finally we take the crowns of our heart that says, I'm king and we cast it down. We say, you are the king. You are the king. Christmas shows us that he had to be made like us so that he could bear the crushing weight of our sin and crush the enemy and sin forever. Let me close with a biblical story and then one last illustration. One of the best and greatest kings of Judah was King Hezekiah. He was known to be one of the few faithful kings of the Lord. But there's a really sad story about the end of his life. And it just is a great reminder for us that it's hard to end well. We see this even with godly men and women in Scripture. Some Babylonian envoys, and Babylon at this point was a rising power. They were essentially about to take over the land away from Assyria and really become the superpower of the region. So these Babylonian envoys come to visit him. And Hezekiah, trying to wanting to do a little boasting, shows them all his wealth and all the wealth of Israel. And God was so angered by Hezekiah that he told them he was going to judge Israel, that all this wealth was going to be gone. Sadly, Hezekiah, in his own arrogance and his own futility and sin, says, I'm just so thankful it's not, that's not going to happen in my lifetime. How selfish. But something that commentator John Oswald notes about Hezekiah is so striking. He says this, he succumbed to the temptation to glorify himself and to prove to the Chaldeans that he was a worthy partner for any sort of coalition they might have in mind. There is no indication that they were interested in such an alliance, however. Much more likely, they simply wished to encourage someone whom they viewed as a petty kinglet without making any commitment on their part. An unsavory picture comes to mind of Hezekiah, scuttling about, showing off his tawdry wealth, before the politely approving gaze of the Babylonians who have in fact seen wealth many times the value of the Judeans' little hoard in their own homeland. Trust in God and his riches will deliver us from the need to make fools of ourselves in the presence of human glory. Do you see Hezekiah here showing off his wealth? Probably to these Babylonians who are snickering and mocking him behind his back. See, in Hezekiah's mind, he was, he was so busy trying to prove, Hey, I am a great king and trying to prove it to these Babylonian envoys who'd seen far more wealth. It's sort of like the person who is on the, you know, doesn't have much money, but they go out and they'll spend all this money on fancy sneakers, name brand sneakers or name brand clothing. They have barely any money to eat and they're walking around wearing this really nice name brand clothing and all their wealth is in this jacket that they're wearing just so that they could look special and then they go home and they're barely surviving. It's the ludicrousness of a person who's trying to build their status and their, their sense of identity based on something that is nothing. It is fleeting. Christmas reminds us that we already have treasure. We have treasure because our God became insignificant, the king of kings, so that we might be a people of significance. Only when you realize that you are not anyone special, as Paul says that you are a foolish thing of the world, only then can you see just how great King Jesus is. And only then will you see that one day you will stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords and he will welcome you as brother and sister. Until you see that Jesus become insignificant so that you can become a person of tremendous significance, will Christmas mean something to you? Let me just close with this one illustration, one more, which is there's a woman, her name is Lisa, Lisa and. She was, she was uh, um, She had miscarried twins. She was also going through tremendous financial hardship. She was having relational difficulties. And she went to, she was on the church worship band. And so she went to a Christmas service and she heard them singing a song. O come all you faithful, joyful and triumphant. The problem is that she couldn't sing the song because she just didn't feel that way. She felt exactly the opposite. And she just didn't want to sing, so she just left. And she went home, and as she was just crying out to the Lord, she read in Matthew 11 that wonderful word of Jesus, Come to me, all you who are weary. And heavy burden. And I will give you rest. And I shared last week the significance of what it means when it says, take my yoke upon you for it is easy because Jesus is sinless and we are sinful and that burden is so great. We bear the consequences and the weight and the guilt and the shame. And Jesus says, take my yoke. Let's exchange yokes. I'll give you my sinless yoke where God sees you as righteous and it is light. And I'll take on the heavy yoke and I'll bear it on the cross. And so she experienced that. And through that, experienced so much freedom and joy that even someone in her lowly state could understand Christ as king. And so she wrote the words that we sang today, O come all you unfaithful. Now She wrote those words in that poem and then turned it into a song. It's a great reminder. Yes, sometimes we sing, Oh, come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. We do come and we sing joyfully and triumphantly because we are saved by Christ. But sometimes when we're at our lowest state, desperate, that's when we can say, you are king. Thank you for Christmas, Lord. So we're going to sing that together one more time. Let's pray. Father, we just praise you for your kindness to us. You became, through your son, Lord Jesus, insignificant as a king. And this whole story that we read in Matthew and in Luke, it's such a story of brokenness and sadness, fear, terror. I think so often we see it as truly a a gentle night But we miss out on the whole picture of how that first story at the birth of Jesus is a pointer to the end of the story of the life of suffering. But it doesn't stop there. The story ends in glory and resurrection. And when we place our hope in Christ alone, not in the world's treasures and goods, not in its money and resources, and when we see that we can come, especially in this season of challenge, we can come broken. We can come fearful. We can come weary, heavy laden. We know that, Lord Jesus, you have borne everything. You have taken this great yoke to make our yoke light and easy. So we respond no other way but in worship and praise to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.